text has um, a word for each one of us today. That he, there's something that he wants to communicate to each one of us, and um, that his word comes to us in um, very real, a very personal, very direct way. And I really sense this morning that that's true for each one of us. And this morning, our central verse and the central theme that we'll spend some time thinking about is found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13. And in that chapter, he says that um, there are three things that will endure, faith, hope, and love, and that the greatest of these is love. And so this morning, I want to uh, have us spend some time just thinking about faith, hope, and love. Now, why I started thinking about these um, three things and why um, I started thinking about this was really um, after last weekend and we had the team come up and share about prophetic ministry. And I was thinking about um, the prophetic and thinking about how we um, use spiritual gifts, how we think about um, using spiritual gifts, including the prophetic and how we use those in the life of our church. And spiritual gifts um, come to us, they're given to us for use within the body of Christ, within the church. And spiritual gifts, um, you know, Paul lists them out. They're listed in several uh, parts of the New Testament. And they include the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues. There's lots of different gifts that are listed and some of the most um, kind of famous passages, as it were, on spiritual gifts are in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 14. Those three chapters that really talk to us about spiritual gifts and how to use spiritual gifts. And so um, after the, the, the weekend last, last weekend, talking about spiritual gifts, talking about the prophetic, I began to really um, think this week about how we use spiritual gifts. And as I thought about that, I really thought about this, this 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. The chapter that um, you might know uh, well, it often is um, spoken or read at weddings. And uh, it's appropriate to do that as celebrating love um, at that wedding ceremony. But Paul originally uh, writes these words in the context of a local church, for the setting of a local church. And he writes these words to the Corinthian church in the New Testament, a church that was... um, that was really doing things badly. They were, they were kind of messed up in terms of their, uh, the way they were practicing their faith, and especially as they were um, practicing their faith towards one another. There was um, uh, this situation where they were putting themselves ahead of other people, where they were acting out in selfish ways, where they weren't um, living in a way that was in true community towards each other. And Paul writes this um, letter to the Corinthians, and he writes it to bring some correction and to bring some instruction to help to set things right for the Corinthian church. And one of the areas that he's writing to bring this correction or this instruction is in their use of spiritual gifts. And one of the things that he uh, says in the midst of this passage is he talks about the importance of love. And so I want to read uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and read some verses from this as our starting point this morning. And so reading uh, from 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So Paul writes these words to the Corinthian church, and he writes it about spiritual gifts, about how to live in community, how to live together in love. And there's a few things that I want to just highlight and mention from this passage as we start this morning. One of the things that we see is that um, this love relationship that the Corinthians are to have in their lives is supposed to be there to help them live uh, well in community. It's right after these verses that Paul goes in to talk about eagerly desiring spiritual gifts and especially the gift of prophecy. And as we um, reflect on last weekend and, and kind of hearing about what it is to live a lifestyle where we're listening to what God is saying to us and then um, speaking what God has said for other people as we're living this lifestyle that um, is prophetic and is a way of speaking um, what God is saying that there's a core aspect to that, which is that we do that within the framework of love. That we do that in a way where we are showing God's love to others. And there's something about that that's really important for us as a church body, where as each of us are growing in spiritual gifts, as each of us pursues spiritual gifts, that we do that within the framework of love within our own lives. So the idea here is that each of us are pursuing spiritual gifts. Each of us are growing in our own knowledge and revelation of God's love. And as we do that together, then as a church, we're built up. One of the most amazing things about the Bible is that we see um, a truth about the church as the body of Christ and how each part of the body needs each other to function well. And when it comes to spiritual gifts, when it comes to loving each other, that's really true, that as we each grow in our own understanding of God's love, then together we can serve and build up each other. There are some things that are also important about the verses that we just read. One of those is just the fundamental importance that Paul places on love. If you catch, he said, you know, he could go so far as to give away everything that he owned and even give up his own body, give up his own physical body to death. But if he didn't have love, that it would be for nothing. The other thing that Paul references here that's important for us is there are some things that Paul talks about that will pass away. And there are some things that Paul talks about that will remain. So some of the things that will pass away are actually the spiritual gifts that he's talking about for us to cultivate in our own lives. He says in verse 8 that though love never ends, prophecies will pass away, tongues will cease, and knowledge will also pass away. 
And why does he talk like this? Well, the reason is because he's talking about this process of becoming more and more mature in our faith. So Paul talks about being a child and then also growing up to be a man and how there's a difference in how you think and there's a difference in how you act and how you reason between being a child and being a man. So we know that in in our physical lives, we know that we grow up, that we think a certain way when we're a child, and then when we're grown up, there's a different way that we think. Well, Paul is talking about the same thing in terms of our spiritual lives, that there's a part of our spiritual lives where we reason, we think a certain way, but then when fullness comes, when that full maturity comes, then there's other ways that we think, speak, and reason. Now, what's Paul talking about specifically? Well, he's really talking about that that time when we are face-to-face with Jesus in his presence, where we are fully seeing Christ. And so, you know, he's thinking about ultimately when we, when we die, when we are in the presence of Jesus, when we see him face-to-face, that there's a fullness of knowledge that we have that we simply don't have at this point. He's talking about when we see Jesus face-to-face, when we're in that place of closeness with him, when we ultimately are there and there is nothing between us and Christ, that prophecy, tongues, knowledge ceases and passes away. See, there's something about spiritual gifts that are, from, are for this, this life and this time where we use them to encourage and build up ourselves, but also to encourage and build up other people, where we use our spiritual gifts to encourage and to build up others that we know in our lives Remember, this is all within the framework of the local church and a church body of believers being together. So Paul is saying that we're to eagerly desire these spiritual gifts, to use them in this framework of love, so that these gifts are a demonstration of God's love for everyone, and that even as we do that, we remember that these are temporary things, that ultimately there's a greater reality that we are pressing towards and that will endure. And that reality is shaped by faith, hope, and love. There are some things that will pass away, but there are some things that will remain and endure. And faith, hope, and love are what will remain and endure. Even when we, when we die, when we go to be in the presence of Jesus, the faith, hope, and love that we have for him will remain. We will always be in a relationship of faith, hope, and love with God, no matter if it's in this world or the world to come. And so Paul reminds us how spiritual gifts fit into our lives. They fit into our lives so that we are encouraged. You know, we receive the Spirit as a sign, as a seal, as a deposit for, the, for an assurance of our faith. So when we use our spiritual gifts and grow in our spiritual gifts, it's an encouragement to us that we know that this is a true Christian life and expression that we're living. But it's also for other people. It's also an expression of God's love poured out for other people. And yet, these things are temporary, and when we are in the presence of God, we know that the fullness of knowledge comes, that we won't need somebody else to give us a prophetic word about what God is saying, because we'll have direct face-to-face access with God ourselves, that all knowledge will be revealed. And so, it's a way that we just look forward and anticipate to the fullness of what is to come. So Paul talks about faith, hope, and love. And this morning I want us to just spend a little bit of time thinking about these three, but especially thinking about love because Paul said it is the greatest. So when you think about the word faith um, and how that's described in the Bible, 
you might, um, your mind might well think, uh, jump to uh, Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is a very uh, well-known passage that talks about faith. And it outlines the life of faith uh, of a lot of Old Testament um, people in particular who just really have gone before and exemplified what it is to live a life of faith. In the very first verse of Hebrews 11, faith is described to us as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now, faith in God, that's a foundational aspect to our lives as Christians. And we understand that faith is really, really important and foundational for our relationship with God. And there's two aspects to, to this faith that I want to mention so the first aspect of our faith relationship with God is that as we read Scripture, as we understand who God is, we put our faith in Christ and we accept and put our faith in Jesus as he's revealed to us. So we believe that, that God sent Jesus uh, to be our Savior, that, that God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world, that he sent him from heaven and that Jesus came and lived a perfect life, that he died in our place, was raised to life on the third day, and now sits at God's right hand in heaven where he makes intercession for us. And by faith, because we believe in Christ, we know then that for our lives, that we can have assurance of salvation, that we, through putting our faith in Christ, can have assurance of salvation, and that in the life that is to come, that we'll be in the presence of Jesus forevermore. So because we've put our faith in Christ, because that's the first aspect of what it is to have faith, we know that there's a second reality that must be true. If we're putting our faith fully in Christ, then we know that we should no longer put our faith in ourselves. There's this great and fundamental um, thing that's at the heart of the Christian life, which is going from a place of putting faith in yourself to putting faith in Jesus. And in many ways, that's the core struggle of the Christian life, is to take faith that you put in yourself and to put it fully onto Christ. When we become Christians, we say that we are putting faith fully, 100% on Jesus. And yet, when we live our lives, it's so tempting to take back some of that faith that we put in Jesus and put it back on ourselves and say, you know, I do trust you, Jesus, but if it's okay, I'd like to have just a little bit of that faith back and I'd like to invest it into my own life because I really trust in my own ability. I really trust in my own ability to earn enough money to provide for my family. Or I think I'm strong enough or smart enough. I feel like I'm gifted enough or I know the right people. I feel like I eat right. You know, I'm strong enough to do this. And often our world will encourage us to think that way where it will say, you know, our culture really rewards people who started with nothing and made something of themselves, where they made it to the top of their profession, or they've made lots and lots of money, or they've made it into, into um, positions of great authority. And our world really respects people like that and says, you should be that person. You should go it alone and you should follow everything that you uh, want to do and put great faith in yourself. Now, some of us may end up achieving great positions of leadership, accumulating vast amounts of wealth, and, and having some of those things. But the difference is, are you putting faith fully on yourself, or are you putting faith fully in Christ? You know, Christ said to seek first his kingdom. And when we put Christ first, when our full faith is in Christ, there are many blessings that can come. 
It's not a guarantee, but there are many great blessings that can come. But the main thing is, where are we putting our faith? Are we trusting in ourselves to get us there? Or are we trusting in Jesus? And so, often in our life, we need to be reminded to to put all of our faith in Jesus. When we come together and we worship in church, we sing a lot about surrendering fully to God. Where We remind ourselves to put our faith fully in God. Because when we go out into the world and our, our everyday lives and our work week and we're around others... It can be really tempting to feel like, you know, putting faith in myself feels like it's more of a winning strategy than putting faith fully in Jesus. Because sometimes we don't understand and we don't see all that Jesus is doing in our lives. We don't see all of the circumstances and understand. And so we're constantly in this struggle to fully commit and put our faith in Christ. That's the first part, faith, hope, and love. Hope in the Bible... um, is a great thing. Now, when I use, when we often use the word hope, we say things like, I hope that it won't snow very much this winter. Now, some of you might want it to be the opposite, where you want a lot of snow. I am not one of those people. But you might say, I want it to snow a lot, or I hope it snows, right? And you use the word hope, but really, when you say hope, there's no conviction behind that word, right? You kind of just toss it out there like, oh, I hope that it's better. You know, I hope that there's no snow or I hope this happens or that happens. I mean, when you say the word hope in that situation, it doesn't really carry any weight. It's just more of a, "Eh, this is what I'm feeling. But hope in the Bible is different. Hope in the Bible is used in a way to describe a confident expectation that you have in God because of his enduring faithfulness. So when hope is used in the Bible, it's not used in the concept of, I hope this happens. Hope is much more of a weighty and confident expectation. There's much more weight and confidence behind the use of the word hope when we read it in scriptures, because it's really rooted in the fact that God is faithful and that God will be able to come through and do what he said he would do. Paul writes to the Ephesians in the New Testament to the church in Ephesus, and he talks to them and says at one point that when you were outside of relationship with God, when you didn't know God, you were living in this world without hope. That was one of the things that characterized the Ephesians before they were in relationship with God, and it's the same for us. Before we were in this relationship with God, we were without hope. Now, we might not have known that we were without hope, and people will often put a lot of um, things in their life to give them hope, right? They look forward to things, you know, it might be a promotion or a vacation or, you know, going back to school. I mean, there's all of these things that they might put hope in. And yet, ultimately, what Paul is saying is there's a greater, more permanent, and a deeper hope that we have as Christians, that we come into through relationship with God, that ultimately, no matter what happens in this life or the life to come, that we have hope that endures, that we have hope in God. And Paul uses the word hope many times in his writings. He talks about us putting hope in the gospel, of having a steadfastness of hope in Jesus. And at one point he even talks about the hope of salvation that we have as a helmet on our heads. So hope should be present in our lives. This confident expectation that's rooted in the enduring faithfulness of God. So finally, love. And this is the third of the three things that Paul tells us will remain or endure. And God can demonstrate his love to us in lots of different ways. And for each of us, it might look different. 
Um, it might be in a really small way. Um, sometimes it's a kind word from somebody. Sometimes it can be a hug. If you sometimes come to church and you're feeling um, you're feeling a little low or you need encouragement, sometimes a hug from somebody that you know at church can really communicate God's love in a way that's just really real or and, and can really encourage you. Sometimes it's um, a word. Maybe it's prophetic ministry. Maybe it's just somebody sees you at church and they say, "Hey, I've, you know, I just have a word for you from God f- for today," and it really speaks into your situation. Maybe it's when you open the Bible and you're reading and you feel as though um, God wrote those words just specifically for you. Where you read the Bible and the words jump off the page and you know that God is speaking to you clearly in that moment. And you know that God is completely aware and knows your situation and the love of God is expressed that way. Other times it comes to us in, in other ways where we just feel and experience God's love. And that can really um, be tied with being in God's presence. And just that's a great um, place to be where we're in God's presence and we feel his love. But sometimes it can be difficult for us to either feel God's love or to kind of sustain and nurture that sense of God's love in our lives. Because life circumstances have this way of kind of eroding and just chipping away at that sense where God loves us. And sometimes we can go into seasons where it seems more difficult to feel or know God's love. There are other times in life where it's opposite, where we just know that God loves us. But for a lot of us, we'll go through at least a time of life that's significant, where God's love seems more distant, where God's love seems further away than it once was, where life circumstances seem to just kind of take us away from, from our love of God. And sometimes that can happen just through life circumstances, things that we want to happen that don't happen, things that just, you know, knock us off course or, you know, just those circumstances of life that can be difficult. Other times, though, it's, you know, things that maybe we've done or we've said or we've thought, maybe something we should have done that we didn't, where we're just really aware of our own inadequacy, of our own brokenness, where we think, you know, I just, I'm, I just don't have it together. Like, this is, I'm just not... I'm not doing well. And sometimes it's in those moments where you feel like, I don't even know if I want to experience God's love right now. You know, it would be better and safer if God kept at a distance. Where if God's love came to me right now, I don't even know what I'd do. It would just be too much for me. And we try to keep God at arm's length because his love seems too terrifying or too much for us. And there are times when, when that's why we feel distant from God. Now, there are times in life where we may then come to a point where we cry out to God, where we say, you know, enough, like, I can't do this anymore. I realize that the way I've been doing it is not working. I realize that whatever's happening around me, I just have to cry out to God. And we know that he's faithful in those times to come and to hear our cry. There are other times where God's love pursues us. And you may be able to think of times in your life where that's happened, where where it's, you haven't even gotten to the point yet where you're saying, okay, I'm going to cry out for God in this situation. And instead, his love finds you first and removes that distance. And it can happen both ways, that God's love comes to us. If there was somebody in, in the Bible that really understood the love of God, it was the Apostle John. So he's one of the disciples, uh, the disciple that Jesus loves. Now, John wrote those words himself, but I'm sure that they're fully true, that, that this was the disciple that Jesus loved. 
First John chapter 3, uh, he has really written some powerful words about the love of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Some translations um, talk about this love as the love that God has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Uh, just a chapter later, 1 John chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. John had a really deep revelation of the love of God. And we see in these words, or in these verses, something really profound is that God himself is love. And when we live in relationship with God, we live in a way that's then free from fear, where his love is making us more perfect. And we know then from these verses that when we experience and encounter God, that we experience and encounter love. That when we encounter God, we encounter love. You might say, well, this is kind of a little bit too much for me. Like, why are we focusing so much on God's love? Aren't there other parts to God's character that we should also be talking about here? Isn't God righteous and holy and just? And doesn't he judge? And isn't God angry? And doesn't he have wrath? Like, don't we see that in the Bible? Like, how can we just focus on his love? And it's true that we do need to remember that these are parts to who God is, that God is holy, that he's completely other than us, even though he can be so close and his presence can be so near to us, that he is fully other than us. And he is righteous, he's holy, he's majestic, he is all of those things. He, he judges and he does have anger and wrath. But God does have anger and wrath and judge, but it's not necessarily what defines him in the same way. God may have wrath towards sin and evil, but God is love. So God is love, and, and God's character is to be loving. And there is this, um, this reality in our world where God does have wrath and anger against sin and evil, where God is dealing with that in a just and a righteous way. And yet, at, there's going to come a point in history when all of the evil and all of um, the sin and death and everything that the fall has corrupted will be fully atoned for, will be fully redeemed, will be fully, completely, permanently made right. Where the victory that Christ has won for us will be fully realized across every aspect of creation. And when that time comes, God's judgment against sin and evil and his anger towards it will cease because it will be dealt with permanently. But what will remain 
is his love. What will remain is his love. And we will always live in this relationship of love with God. In Romans, Paul talks about how should we understand the righteous judgment of God? What should our response be to God's righteous judgment? And one of the things that Paul tells us is that when we look at God, that we are drawn to him. See, the Roman church, there were certain believers in that church in Rome who believed that they should sin more and more and more because God is so loving and gracious that they can do whatever they want and the more they sin, then the more grace that God will have to pour out. And Paul writes and says, no, that's, that's totally backwards. You don't understand grace. You, you don't understand grace. And, and he was trying to have them understand what it is that we should do to respond to God's grace and his love and his mercy. And you might think that Paul could take this moment to say, the best way to respond to God's grace is to recognize that he is this awesome and terrifying judge and you should, um, you should come to him because he's so terrifying that you realize that you, know, you have no hope. And instead, Paul says, in this crucial point in Romans, he said it's actually God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's actually God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not that he's so terrible and, and wrathful and angry, but it's actually his kindness that draws us to repentance. It's really hard to be drawn towards something that you're terrified of. It's really hard to be drawn towards a a relationship where you put trust in something that you're completely terrified of. And it's the kindness of God that draws us into repentance. How do we live in a way where we can nurture and sustain this knowledge and experience of the love of God in our lives? I want to talk about three things quickly as we finish this morning. There's these words that Paul has written in 1 Corinthians 13, that faith, hope, and love abide, and the greatest is love. And I think the reason that Paul, or one of the reasons that Paul highlights love is because when we nurture and sustain a love relationship with God, that hope and faith have a way of sustaining themselves. So it's important that we nurture all three, but when we especially focus on sustaining and nurturing our love relationship with God, then all three seem to take care of themselves. Because often when we're challenged to die in God's faithfulness or our faith, we want to take it off of Christ and put it on ourselves. Often the, the root of that is that we doubt the love of God, that we doubt that he really loves us. It's the same whenever we um, are tempted to give up hope where the temptation really is, do we really believe that God loves us? And ultimately, I think that one of the keys from this message is that when we sustain and nurture love, that that is at the core of our relationship with God. So three things to think about as we think about nurturing and sustaining love in our lives. Uh, the first is taken from the Old Testament. So the, the uh, Israelites in the Old Testament had this, uh, this way that they would live in a relationship with God. And there's a key word that is used at various points in the Old Testament that can be helpful for us. And that word is, that, uh, is to remember. 
is to remember. So there's lots of times in the Old Testament where things are not going necessarily according to plan, at least from the Israelites' perspective, where God isn't coming through for them or things aren't happening on their plan or you know things just aren't really working out very well. And there's this expression that's used throughout the Old Testament where it says that God remembers his people or God remembers his covenant with his people. And this expression that God remembers isn't like, oh, I've got to remember to grab something from the store. It's, it's much more deep than that, where it's God remembers. It's he looks at their situation, and he takes stock of their situation, and he realizes that he, um, is, that he needs to be faithful to what words he's spoken before. And there's a whole idea of within a relationship that God remembers and his faithfulness then is shown towards his people. So one of the best examples of this is in Exodus. So God has given all these promises to, um, to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And um, there's all of these promises that are wrapped up with the covenant that God has made with Abraham. And by this first couple of chapters of Exodus, it looks as though all of those promises are essentially for nothing. Like everything is going wrong in the life of this nation of Israel. They're in slavery in Egypt and Pharaoh is oppressing them and all the firstborn are being killed. So how can they, you know, they're living in the wrong land. How can they even grow? And there's all of these things that God has promised that the nation of Israel holds dear and they're all being challenged. So it would be the equivalent for us in life where we feel like God has promised something and yet everything is going wrong. Where there's nothing that seems to be on the horizon, nothing we can see, nothing we can think about that seems to be fulfilling these words. And at the very last couple of verses of Exodus chapter 2, there's the turning point for the whole book of Exodus where it says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham. That God remembered his people. The very next chapter is when we, we read about the birth of Moses, where Moses is born and he will ultimately be the one to lead the people out of Egypt. So there are these key points over and over in the Bible where God remembers his people, which is where God does not forget about his people. He comes down and he intervenes because he's in relationship and he's faithful to them. The other part of that is where um, over and over in the Old Testament that the Israelites remember what God has done. When you're reading the book of Psalms and it's the worship songs that the Old Testament uh, people are singing, the, the Israelites are singing, a lot of those songs remember specific incidents when God came through for them. They remember specific incidents where God proved his faithfulness and his loving kindness. And so there's two sides to remembering. There's where We can be confident that God remembers us and then there's an encouragement that we in turn remember what God has done in our lives. And so when you are, um, when you are challenged and in, in, in thinking, does God really love me? Does, do, I, do I really know? Do I sense? Do I feel God's love? We're, we can be encouraged through Scripture. We know that God remembers his people. But the other encouragement and word to us is that we have to then do something active, which is remind ourselves and remember and actively remember what has God done for us. What can I read in Scripture where God has come through for his people? What can I remember in my own life where God has come through, where God has shown his love to me? The second thing to know as we kind of think about nurturing and sustaining this love relationship with God is that God restores all things and that we're in a new relationship of love 
with God. Now, God has always been gracious towards his people. God has always been loving towards his people. And as he shows his love, his love often comes to us as a way where he makes things right that have gone wrong. So God has always been like this with his people. Sometimes it's tempting to think that the Old Testament just shows the kind of judging, wrathful, angry side of God, but the New Testament is the more loving side of God. And nothing could be further from the truth. God has always demonstrated and shown his loving nature and his loving kindness towards his people. Uh, nobody messed up more in human history maybe than Adam and Eve. They had it all perfect. They had it all right. They walked face to face with God, and yet they messed it up permanently for all of us. They went from a relationship of just perfect harmony and loving relationship with God to where when God came down and walked in the garden that they hid from him because they were ashamed. Where that closeness of relationship was totally corrupted. And God showed his love to to Adam and Eve even in that moment where they felt ashamed, they realized they were naked, they felt shame, they felt isolation, and God was loving. He clothes them, and he puts them outside of the garden. They might think being outside of the garden, that seems like he's rejecting them, and that seems like it's not loving. But really, it was an incredibly loving act, because if they had been able to um, eat of the tree of life, they would have been kept in that state of corruption forever. And God didn't want them to stay in that state forever. So the angels were there to stop Adam and Eve from getting back into the garden for their own good. And there's a real sense in which God provides for Adam and Eve, even though they've brought this great destruction on themselves. There's lots of other examples. Moses is another good example where Moses wasn't always the poster child for what it was to uh, be in close relationship with God. And you remember he had to leave Egypt after he committed murder. And then when God comes to him and that great scene where God is giving Moses his, the rest of his life's work and he says, this is what you're going to do. And Moses says, no, I think you've got the wrong guy. Send my brother. I mean, Moses wasn't always you know, what we think of Moses in terms of this great leader. But God uses Moses. And, you know, Moses, we often think he wrote the law, and so he must have had this kind of interesting relationship with God where it was very like, do this and don't do that. Moses is the one who tells us what's clean and what's unclean about mixed fabrics and all those other laws that are in there. And yet, Moses had this face-to-face close relationship with God to the point where Moses would ask God of certain things, and the Bible said that God changed his mind where what Moses said and the closest of relationship they had was, was just incredible. And one of the times uh, Moses says to God, I want to see your glory, and one of the most bold requests in all of Scripture, where Moses says he wants to see God's glory. And this is basically Moses saying, I want to really know you. I want to really know you. So this is the guy, Moses, who is kind of distant for a period of time from God, gets to the point where he says, I want to know you. I want to know the real God. And God says, okay, and he reveals his glory to Moses. And what's the thing that stands out to Moses that he records for us in that encounter? That even though it's the glory and the majesty and the awe of God that's walking by him, and God even has to kind of shield Moses from seeing most of it, or else it would be too much for him. And what's the thing that Moses walks away from that encounter with? The Lord is loving, the Lord is kind, the Lord is compassionate. Those are the words that Moses records for us. In Exodus 34. So God has always been in the business of showing his love 
and a restoring relationship. Peter's another great example in the New Testament. The disciple who understands who Jesus is before any of the other disciples. He says, you are the Messiah. You, you are the one who has come. Peter gets it first, and Jesus says, I'll build my church upon you. I mean, Peter's right there, and yet Peter's the one who denies that he even ever met Jesus and turns his back on Jesus. And yet, before the end of the gospel story, we read in John's gospel that Jesus restores his relationship with Peter. And what was the question that Jesus asked Peter? Do you love me? It's a love relationship. And so, the second thing, the first is that we remember, you know, we remember God and He remembers us. Second, that we know that we are in this love relationship with God and that God will bring about restoration as part of that love relationship. And the last part is really simple, but sometimes we can easily forget about it, is that when we're thinking about how do I nurture and sustain this experience of love and this knowledge of God's love in my life, that we simply remember to ask for it. That we just remember to ask for it. So we remember the good things that God has done, His loving kindness, His faithfulness. We know that God is um, wanting to be in a relationship with us that is defined by love. That God restores things in our lives. But finally, we remember to ask God to reveal His love to us. Because we'll always be in this love relationship that faith, hope, and love endure. That they will remain. The greatest of these things is love. And so as we pursue love, it's at the heart of our relationship with God. And so it's okay to ask for God to reveal His love to us. And so sometimes we're busy, sometimes we forget to ask God to just reveal that he's loving, to reveal to us in personal ways, in individual ways, that he is loving. And so as we finish this morning, let's just take a couple of minutes and let's just pray and ask that God would show that he's loving towards us just as one step this morning as we apply this message. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are love, that you pour out your loving kindness, that you have lavished love upon us. And God, I just ask this morning that you would reveal your love to us once more, that you would pour out your love into our hearts, into our minds once more. And God, sometimes we just simply forget to ask you to pour out your love into our lives. God, we get busy and we get distracted and we get drawn away from our love relationship with you. God, help us to nurture and sustain that relationship of love with you. And God, we just ask that you would show us your love this morning. Show us your love. Show us how much you love us. And God, that might be in a really big way. It might be in a really small way. But you know what each of us needs this morning. Thank you for your love, God. Thank you that you are the restorer of all things, God. And that you remember us and that you know our situations. Show us your love, we pray, God. In your name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Tori. Thank you.